Hey, good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Welcome to Union Chapel this morning. We're so thrilled you're here. My name is Greg Paris, one of the uh, pastors here, and so we're glad you're here. We're in the middle of a series right now on wisdom. Now, all of us now are living uh, on the information superhighway. We all are aware of that. There's information, there's knowledge, there are facts available, at, literally at our fingertips. And it's an amazing time to be alive because of access to so much of these details. But let me just remind you, while you can get all the information in the world, all the knowledge in the world, all the facts in the world at a moment's notice, you cannot get wisdom. Can I get wisdom? Now, in the classical definition of wisdom, it's the combination of knowledge and experience and, and, and good preparation that leads toward the the successful execution of a project or, or making a wise decision, that sort of thing, so you did a wise thing. But the Bible takes it another step further, that there is a wisdom that comes from God that is the revealing of or the, resur- the, the revelation of information that he has, direction that he has for our lives that is of a supernatural nature and adds his special miraculous touch. I want to talk about that today. We have chosen as our text this morning from the Old Testament book, Habakkuk. I know some of you have been reading devotionally in Habakkuk recently, maybe not. Uh, So it may take you a little while to find it if you're looking for it. Otherwise, we'll project the words, of course, on the screen. But Habakkuk in the first chapter is talking to God. And then beginning in chapter 2 of Habakkuk, now we hear God speaking to Habakkuk. Now, let me give you the big thought today. You ready? Here's the big thought. This is is it. There is nothing more important in your life than discerning the voice of God. There is nothing more important in your life than being able to hear clearly the voice of God. And we want to talk about how we can do that today. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Habakkuk. If not, we'll project the words. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word. Just a couple of verses this morning from Habakkuk chapter 2. So he writes, I will stand at my watch, station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Now here's the answer. The Lord replied, write down the revelation, make it plain on tablets, so a herald may run with it. So in other words, he said, I'm going to take my position. I'm going to wait. I'm going, I'm going to withdraw to a certain location, and I'm going to listen for God. And when I hear from God, I'm going to write it down so that I can share it with others. So we get instruction from Habakkuk now about how to hear the voice of God. And we'll unpack this a little bit as we go through it. So may God instruct and inspire us through his word. You may be seated. Thanks so much. The Bible is full of examples of people who have heard the voice of God. I'm not sure people are hearing the voice of God too clearly these days. What do you think? Not sure folks are listening very closely to the voice of God. And there may be a reason for that or several reasons. We're just not tuned in for some some reason. And so there are some reasons why it's important to hear God's voice. It's right at the top of your outline. You might want to write these down. First of all, it proves that you're a child of God. Proves that you're a child of God. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice. John 8, 47 says, He who belongs to God hears God's voice. 
And so we have the promise of the scripture that God will speak to us and we'll be able to hear him. B, on your outline, it protects you from mistakes. Um, anyone here ever made a mistake? Okay, we've, here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about those big mistakes. If I were to ask all of you today, tell me the worst mistake you've ever made in your life, we would have some stories, wouldn't we? I mean, some of the stories we'd go, oh my, <laughs> you did what? <laughs> and it was a big mistake. Well, hearing God's voice will protect us from making those kind of big mistakes. Yeah. And then C, it's a key to a productive life. I can give my story today, key to a productive life, and that is anything worthwhile that's happened in my life has occurred because of two reasons primarily. One is because of the amazing grace of God, the unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor of God. God just smiled on me in spite of me and my life was blessed. Can I, can I get a witness? The grace of God is the reason worthwhile things happen to us. The second reason I think worthwhile things have happened to me, at least, is that I've been willing to take the time and intentionality to try to discern what God was saying to me in important moments of my life. And when I've heard God's voice, it's really helped. It's protected me. It's provided for me. It's helped me. It's blessed me. So let me just summarize what we just uh, try to lay a foundation for. I'll put this on the screen. You want to write this down. Hearing God's voice begins with an attitude of submission. It means I must be willing not only to hear but to do. Not only to discern what God is saying but to then practice what I've heard. To apply what I've discovered about God's will for my life. Now, most of you know the name Moses. Moses was an Old Testament character. He was the guy that God used to deliver the Israelites out of bondage, out of Egypt. Uh, Israel was in Egyptian slavery for 400 years, and Moses was born right at the end of that period. And you may recall that he was born to slaves, but God arranged it so that he would be raised in the house of the Pharaoh. So the first 40 years of Moses' life was Moses learning how to be somebody because he lived in the palace and he was raised in the royal family, so he was very popular, very well-known. Then God arranged for Moses for the next 40 years of his life to be a shepherd out in the desert of Midian. So literally for 40 years, this guy's either stepping in it or stepping over it for 40 years. And, and God taught him then how to be a nobody. He was out in the middle of nowhere. So at the age of 80, then God calls Moses for this important task of delivering the nation out of Egyptian bondage. And so Moses has this experience. You may remember this burning bush encounter. This bush is burning, but it's not consumed. A voice, the voice of God comes out of this bush. And so Moses is hearing the voice of God. This is holy ground. Take off your shoes. I am that I am. And then there's this question. It's found in Exodus 4.2. And the Lord said to Moses, what is that in your hand? What is that in your hand? Very interesting question, isn't it? Let me just submit to you that there are two questions that God asks everybody in their life. Maybe the two most important questions you'll ever hear from God. Let me put them on the screen. I don't want you to miss them. I also put them on your outline. The first is this. What have you done with my son, Jesus Christ? Very important question. Quintessential question. Eternal complication, implications with this question. What have you done with my son? God Almighty loved us so much that he gave his son to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. The thing 
that separated us from relationship with God, peace with God, our sin has been resolved. And we have been redeemed, purchased by God through the merits of his son, Jesus Christ. And so this free gift of this invitation has been given to all of us to receive freely by faith this gift of life. It's the most important question you will ever answer. I hope you've already answered that question in your life. What have you done with Jesus? And I hope you've said yes to him. The second question I think God asks all of us in our lives is the one that Moses was asked. And it was simply this, what is in your hand? And what did Moses say? Moses said, well, I've got a, I got a shepherd's staff here. It's like a crook. It's just a stick. I have a stick. And what does God say to him? He said, throw it down on the ground. So he throws it down on the ground and it becomes a serpent. And then God says, pick it back up. And so he reaches down, he grabs it and it becomes a stick again. That's a very strange story, isn't it? Very strange. Well, let me just remind you, God doesn't do any miracles just to show off. There's always meaning. There's always a message in these miracles. There's a parable in every miracle. And so, and so there's a message here. And we can ask the question, okay, well, what are the implications? What are the symbolic implications of this staff, this shepherd's staff? Well, one thing we can say is this represents his identity as a shepherd. I mean, you see a guy there holding a shepherd's staff. You say, that's probably a shepherd. If you see, if you're at the hospital, you see a person wearing a stethoscope around their neck, you probably imply that's a doctor or a nurse. Or if you see someone in a lab coat, that's a technician. Or you see someone out on a work site with a tool belt on, you know that that's a person involved in the trades. And so it's symbolic. It identifies them. It's who they are. And so here is Moses identified by this staff as a shepherd. How about this? It also was indicative of his income, his wealth. Because in a nomadic culture, everyone's wealth is measured by the size of your herds and flocks. So how many head of sheep do you have? This implies your wealth. And so it, in, it was symbolic of his income, his assets in life. Another thing that we might Imagine that this symbolized was his influence. With this staff, you know, he would prod the sheep, he would poke the sheep, he would hook the sheep and pull the... This is how he influenced them, by hook or by crook, right? And so the sheep were influenced by the staff. So we could say that the staff was more than just a stick in his hand. It actually represented his identity, his income, and his influence. Now think about that. It represented his whole life. You heard me say a couple of weeks ago that I, I weary of Christianity in modern American culture, that it's kind of a, a costless Christianity, a cross-less Christianity. You know, come to Jesus, everything will be fine, it won't cost you anything, you know, you won't have to give up anything. Wait a minute, yes you do. Yes you do, you have to give up your whole life. That's what I've found in my life cost me everything. Following Jesus costs a lot, like everything. <laughs> but watch what happens in the Moses story because we can learn a great deal from this. God says to Moses, what is in your hand? He said, this is my staff. In other words, this is me. This is my life. This is my identity. This is my influence. This is my, this is my assets, my income. And what does God say to him? Throw it down on the ground. And when he lets it go, and it goes to the ground. Now it got, it's in God's possession and it comes alive. 
and it, it takes on a different form and it's a dynamic thing. But as soon as Moses picks it up again, takes it back, then it begins to die and to diminish. Now there's a, there's a lesson here. There's a lesson in this miracle and I hope you can hear it. Almighty God stands before all of us and he asks us this important question. What is in your hand? In other words, he's asking, who are you? And what are your assets? What is your stuff? How, what is in your hand? And what is your influence? What are the networks? What are the relationships? What are the connections that you have in your life that can influence others? And, and what are the abilities and capabilities I've given you to influence people in that way? In other words, God says, what is in your hand? Who are you as a person? And you say, this is, this is who I am and what I have as a person. And what does God ask of us? He says, lay it down. Give it to me. Turn loose of it, for you are no longer your own, but you've been bought with a price. When we say yes to Jesus, it costs us our life. And Jesus says, lay it down. The Bible says that if a grain of wheat falls to the ground and, and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies and then resurrects to life, then it bears fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. And so this is the lesson of this miracle that if we lay down our lives, God Almighty will miraculously touch our lives and enhance our lives and enable our lives to be a great influence for his sake. But as soon as we pick up our lives, we take it up again and repossess our lives, we'll begin to die and our influence will begin to diminish. It's good preaching right there. And so God offers this invitation to us. It's interesting to note that from this point forward, this staff, this crook of Moses is no longer referred to as a stick. From this point forward, this staff of Moses is referred to as the rod of God. So Moses holds up this staff and the plagues, the 10 plagues of God fall upon Egypt. He touches the Nile River with it, it turns to blood. He raises it before the Red Sea and it parts. This is the hand of God, the miraculous hand of God through the life of a person who has surrendered his life for God's purposes. It's an amazing, an amazing truth. He said, well, it's, it's really not that big of a deal, is it? I mean, really? Well, if you stop and think about it for a moment, what if Moses hadn't heard God's voice that day? What if when God asked, what's in your hand? Moses said, it's my staff. It's all mine. And God said, lay it down to the ground. No, it's mine. <laughs> what, if, what if that's how the story had ended? Well, there had been no exodus out of Egypt. There had been no Ten Commandments because Moses received the Ten Commandments wandering in the desert of Sinai with the nation of Israel. If there's, if there's no Ten Commandments, then there's no nation of Israel. If there's no nation of Israel, there's no people through whom the Messiah can be born. If there's no Messiah, then there's no church. There's no Savior. We're not here today because the church doesn't exist. I want to submit to you that that moment when Moses heard the voice of God and surrendered himself and submitted himself to the voice of God, very important moment, very important moment. And I think it's important for us as well. By the way, when God asks you a question, just like he asked Moses, he already knows the answer. You understand? God won't ask you a question because he doesn't know the answer. He'll ask you the question because he wants you to understand the answer. What is in your hand? What is in your hand? Yeah, what is in your hand? Love that. Well, hearing God then, write this down. It's on the middle of your outline. Hearing God then, 
It helps because when I, when I believe that God cares about the details of my life. When he cares about the details of my life. I'm going to help someone right now. Because this is not intuitive for us as followers of God. We assume that God is big. We assume God's great. He's grand. He's beyond comprehension. And he's really busy. He's, he's, if he's created the heavens and the earth, the whole universe is held together by his hand. He's got to be busy managing the whole place. It's a big place. <laughs> and so he's big. And we are very small. And so relatively, we assume, this is what we intuit, we assume that God is so great and he's so busy that he really doesn't have a lot of time for us. In fact, it's even hard for us to imagine, to even get our minds around the idea that God's even aware that we exist, let alone cares about us. But what we are taught in all of the scripture and in the reality of God sending his son Jesus to the world, what we learn from this is that God is a God of love and he genuinely cares about every detail of your life. He not only knows you, he knows everything about you and he cares about that. Think about all the details of your day. He cares about those details. He cares about them. It's, it's hard to imagine it, yet it's true. We have the capacity to love and to be loved because we've been made in the image and likeness of God. We, we have this ability to create and imagine unbelievable things because we've been created and designed in the image and likeness of God, a loving God who cares about the details of our lives. And God's love is unconditional. Let me just encourage you today. God loves you when you're good. God loves you when you're bad. God loves you when you're having a good day. God loves you when you're having a bad day. God loves you when you feel like it. God loves you when you don't. God's love is unconditional. There's nothing that you can do to keep God from loving you. God loves you as much right now as he's ever going to love you and ever will love you. He loves you. And there's nothing you can do about it. And so you can't make God stop loving you. And all of that to remind ourselves that God cares about the details. And if God cares about the details, then he's going to speak to you about those details. And he wants to connect with you intimately and personally at that level. Here's another thought. I must believe that God wants to answer my questions, that he really wants to. In James chapter 1, the question is asked this way, does any man lack wisdom? Does any person lack wisdom? <laughs> Can I, anyone? Anyone lack wisdom? <laughs> Both hands. Does any, does any person lack wisdom? That's us, right? So this invitation is to us. Here's what it says. Let him ask of God. If any person lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously and lavishly and liberally to those who ask. If they ask, expecting an answer. That's the only qualifier. So if any person lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who's going to give to us. All of that means that God's not hiding from us. He's not withholding from us. He's not, he's not keeping his will and his wisdom from us to blindside us somehow. He wants to speak to us. He's willing to speak to us. He's ready to speak to us. He wants to. And so we ask, well, how come God doesn't answer when I ask? You know, the second that I ask. Well, there's wisdom in that. Because God knows 
that we can only handle so much information at a time. I don't know about you. Let me just, here's my testimony again. See if anyone resonates with this. If I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have done it. <laughs> anyone, anyone got that? If I knew then what I know now, I don't think, I don't think God could have gotten me to do it. <laughs> That's why he doesn't give you the full plan ahead of time. That's why he doesn't answer every question right away. That's why he doesn't give you the full blueprint because he knows we can't handle that. It'll be too much, too overwhelming. So we get light for the next step, enough illumination, enough revelation to take the next step in the journey. That's how his will unfolds to us more, more times than not. And it's because God is protecting us from too much information. And so he nurtures us that way and he walks with us. And the other thing about it is that sometimes God withholds his will and his voice, his plan to us, just to make us more hungry for him. Because he knows, he knows that our pursuit of him is the best thing that we could possibly do. And because he loves us and he's for us, he orchestrates the unfolding of his plan in our lives slowly so that we'll keep hungry and we'll keep searching and we'll keep desperate for more of God. He keeps us, he keeps us going that way. There's another, there's another fact in all of this that we have to come to terms with, and that, that is that it's very possible that God is more willing to speak to us than we are willing to listen. Is that okay? We have to assume responsibility for this too. Someone said the biggest problem isn't knowing God's will, it's actually doing it. Doing God's will apparently is difficult, yeah. It's not the easiest way. And so we're not often quick to hear because... We don't want to hear the answer. It's okay, God, I got this. I've, I've made some plans here. I've, I've orchestrated the details. I got the timeline. I got it covered. Thanks. And we don't bother to ask God because we don't want to hear what he has to say about it. And so we're hesitant, reluctant to hear clearly. So what happens now with Habakkuk is he asks God some questions. And then in chapter 2, God speaks to him. And we can follow Habakkuk's model for hearing God's voice. And I put this at the bottom of your outline, and it's, they're very practical. This is as practical as I know how to teach this about how to hear God's voice. Now, here's the first thing you do. It's what Habakkuk did. And you withdraw. Withdraw. By that, I mean you pull back and get quiet. You cannot hear God's voice if you have your earbuds in, if you have the iTunes turned up, if you have the TV turned on all the time. You can't hear God if you're always surrounded by noise. And we live in a noisy world. And it's very difficult. It's impossible to hear God's voice if you have so much noise. The Bible says that Jesus often withdrew to a quiet place to pray. And when we hear the word often, that means that was his habit, to get alone, to withdraw in order to pray, talk to God. Now, if that was a habit that Jesus had, would you agree that's a habit we need to have? Is this a habit you have in your life? To get to a place at a time designated where it's quiet and you can talk to God and hear from God? It's very important to have such a place and have such a time. And I hope you, I hope you do. So it means, it means to withdraw. One of the reasons that folks won't do this is because... Some people can't stand to be alone, can't stand the quiet. We have an entire culture today that can't stand silence. 
We have this increasing phenomenon where the attention span of people is decreasing more and more. So I just read recently, little ones, you know, seven or eight-year-olds, their, their attention span is down under 10 seconds. That's not going to be quite enough <laughs> to capture what you need. So remove the distractions and get alone where it's quiet with God. You have to withdraw. Here's the second step, and that is to wait. To wait. It means to calm the thoughts, calm the emotions, slow down. Hurry is the death of prayer. Hurry is the death of trying to hear God's voice. You have to slow down and you have to wait to hear God's voice. God speaks to those who take time to listen. Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. So calm your mind, your body, your emotions. Um, and, and spend some time listening to God. Now, people ask me, do you kneel when you pray? Sometimes, but not very often. Why don't you kneel in prayer, Pastor? Because it hurts. <laughs> so I need to spend some time with God. I'm not going to kneel because I can't, I can't be very long with God kneeling because it hurts too bad. So I find a comfortable spot. If I want to wait and hear God, I need a comfortable place so that I can give it the time it needs. Some, some, one of the saints in history is called Old Camel Knees. It's because they were on their knees in prayer so much that, that their knees developed all these calluses. Well, maybe that's you, you know, but I, I'm just not into that kind of endurance kind of praying, so I don't, I don't spend time on my knees. Years ago, uh, in a church, little church I pastored in southern Indiana, one of my parishioners, her name was Pearl, Pearl Bloom. Pearl was 93 years old when I was her pastor. And I went to visit her, and you can imagine her how she lived by herself. She was completely independent. Uh, she was always just beautifully appointed. Her hair was always in place, you know, uh, a little string of pearls usually around her neck, this little cotton dress, you know, freshly pressed. And I went into her house the first time. You can imagine this living room. You know, everything was just... In, a, in its place, you know, little doilies everywhere. It was, you can almost smell her house. And, and so, so you, I walked in there and she sat down on the sofa and I noticed on the coffee table, there was a Bible and it was, it was in about eight pieces, just stacked on top of itself. I said, Pearl, looks like your Bible's worn out. Pearl said, well, that's the third Bible that I've worn out in my life. And I thought, Oh, one of those. Oh. She, I said, looks like you're going to need another one. And she said, I think that one will probably last me to the end. She's 93. I spoke with her for a little while, and at the end I said, well, let me pray for you, Pearl. And I said, and so I bowed my head. She said, oh, thank you. And then I heard some rustling, and I opened my eyes, and she was climbing, climbing out of the sofa to get down on her knees on the floor. Pearl, what are you doing? <laughs> oh, she said, I never pray unless I'm on my knees. Okay, so I, I got up, went over, helped her get to her knees, and so I knelt on the other end of the coffee table, and I prayed for her, and then Pearl prayed for me. That was much better. And then I had to help her get back up. I thought, if I wasn't here, it'd take her all day to, you know, do her prayers because just getting down and up. She's 93. <laughs> Remarkable person. Well, in our church, we had... 
relatively new hymnals at the time, and they had raised money for the hymnals by asking individuals to pay enough to give enough to the church to buy a hymnal. And if you, if you if you bought a hymnal, then you got your name embossed on the cover of the hymnal down at the bottom in gold gold letter. And I knew that Pearl had purchased a, a hymnal. So the last day I was there before many years ago when I, we moved to Muncie, I went through the sanctuary looking for hymnals and I, until I found Pearl Bloom's hymnal, and then I stole it. And I brought it with me <laughs> to Muncie. <laughs> I know, I'm a thief. It's horrible. Pearl's in heaven right now. She's going, Pastor, I sure, I sure love you. You shouldn't have stole my hymnal. She would have, she would have been upset about that. I didn't care. So I took, I took Pearl's hymnal. I have it in my office today if you want to see it. And so when I get, when I get tired in prayer or I get tired in, in, in studying the scripture and I, I lose my persistence and I, and I need to get refocused, I pull that hymnal off my shelf and I just set it in front of me because it says Pearl Bloom right there. And then I know what to do. So you have, to, you have to wait. You have to be patient to hear God. Here's the third thing. Read the Bible. Read the Word of God. You know, this is God's will. This is the wisdom of God. There are actual books in the Bible that are called wisdom literature. You can, you can get a lot of information, a lot of wise insight from God. You don't, you don't need to hear His voice all the time. You just need a verse of God's wisdom found in the scripture to help you. Uh, you know, the Bible's already said a lot about a lot of things. You don't have to go asking God about it. You know, okay, God, I need to hear your voice. I, I sense the need to divorce the old model and uh, marry a newer model. No, no, that one's easy. The answer to that is no. But I thought God was saying no. He didn't say that. He said, be faithful to the wife of your youth. Be faithful till death do you part. It's a covenant. So you, you made a covenant with that person. And so, no, I'm always short on cash. And, and God knows, I, you know, I want to give more and I, wanna, I just want to have a, a little easier time of it. So if I just embezzle a little money from my business, uh, from my employer, I'll have cash flow will be much better and I'll, just, I'll be able to pay my bills, give more, do more good. And so if I just steal a little money to help me out, that, that's the way to go. The, uh, that's a no. That's a no. That's already clearly articulated. No. And, and 10,000 other questions we may have of God is already answered in his book. By the way, if you're new to the Bible or, or you need to reinvest your life in the Bible, I understand that picking up a Bible for the first time can be intimidating and can be a bit overwhelming and feel very complicated. So I don't recommend you open to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and start reading. Or even the New Testament, if you start reading in Matthew, you're only going to get two chapters of genealogy before you get into any of the storyline. And so I don't recommend starting there. But here's what I'd recommend. If you're new to the Bible or you want to get back in your Bible... Go to the book of Ephesians. In the New Testament, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, only a handful of chapters, 
And here's all you do. It's this simple. It's not complicated. Just do this. Just sit down with the book of Ephesians open. Pray this prayer. Lord, speak to me today through your word. That's it. And then I want you to start reading. Chapter 1, verse 1. Start reading Ephesians. And read until something impresses you. Don't read the whole chapter. Don't read the whole book. Don't read the whole New Testament. Just read until something speaks to you, touches you, impresses you. I mean, you, you get, there's something going on there. Read, it may be the first verse, maybe the first phrase of the first verse. I don't know. You may read 30 seconds. You may read three minutes. You may read 30 minutes until something catches you. Just read until something impresses you, then reread it. Read it about three or four times. Just read it over and over again to try to absorb the meaning and then pray this simple prayer. Simple prayer. Lord, help me to apply what you've said to me today through your word. That's it. Then close your Bible, go off to work. You do that every day and when you turn 93, you'll have a Bible worn out. And you'll have the wisdom of God resonant in your heart. You won't need some young pastor to come to your house to help you understand what life's about. You already got it because you have learned God's word. You are a wise person because you think the thoughts of God. You've rehearsed it over and over again over the years. And all you have to do is five minutes every day to get to a place like that. This isn't, this isn't quantum physics. It's not dimensional time travel. It's just incorporating God's truth into your life and being intentional about that. Read the word of God. Number four, write down the insights. This is what Habakkuk said, write it down. God said to him, write it down. God said, what I say, write it down. Now this may not be verbatim what God is saying, but just thoughts or impressions or ideas that come into your mind. And especially at the, in the context of trying to sort a major decision in your life, a big project of some sort, this is when you want to just write things down. You should do it days at a time and maybe even weeks and months at a time because you're working up toward a major decision and you want as much perspective as you can get. So write it down because if you have it written down, now you have some perspective over time that you can go back and that leads to the fifth point, which is review. Review what you're hearing. Review what you're studying in God's word. Review what you've written down. And as you do that, the whole issue, the whole, the whole circumstance will start to come into focus for you. Three thoughts about this review. One is that you should always seek wise counsel. The Bible says there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Find someone or a group of someones who are more mature than you in the faith who are farther down the road than you in the journey and ask them their perspective. Seek wise counsel. Listen to your pastor. Listen to me. Stay with me now. We're just about done. Never, ever, ever, never do I make a major decision by myself. Never make a major decision alone. Always have trusted people around you in the course of a major decision. So important. And this caveat, listen to me carefully. Young people in the room, listen to me. I'm, I, this is going to save somebody. Listen, 
the younger you are in life, chronological age, the younger you are, the more likely it will be that wise counsel in your life will come from someone who is older than you. The younger you are, the more likely it will be that someone older than you will provide the wise counsel. If you're 18 and you're wondering whether to marry that guy, don't ask your 15-year-old sister what she thinks. She's not likely to be the source of wisdom for you. Find the older. So I'm 18. Okay, I talked to my friend. She's 19. Find someone in their 30s. Find someone in their 40s. Talk, talk to someone in their 60s. These are people who have lived a while and walked with Jesus for a while. They will have perspective that you do not have, and that's, and that's what you want. You want their wisdom. So wise counsel is part of this review. The second thing is to discern God's timing. Timing is always very critical in a major decision. You can have, you can have all the details lined up, and you think you have everything you need to make this choice, but now it becomes a matter of timing. I'm working with a guy right now, and he's been wrestling with a major question in his life for two years. Two years. And just now, he feels like, I think the time is right. In the kingdom of God, timing is everything. And you've already discovered, if you've, if you've known Jesus five minutes, you know that your timing and God's timing rarely line up. We're always either behind or ahead of God all the time. So being sensitive to timing is a big deal, especially with major Decision. Last point, last thought, and that is the peace of God. The Bible says, let the peace of God rule and reign in your heart, minds and hearts. Let the peace of God rule and reign. Now, listen to me. What I'm about to tell you has to be nuanced a bit. It has to be, it's a little more subjective to teach. It's, it's not really straightforward, so you have to listen carefully. Seeking the peace of God in a major decision, the wisdom of God for a major decision, the peace of God should be the very last thing that you pursue. Not the first thing, not the second, not the third. It should be the very last thing that you pursue in discerning God's will for your life. Very important. Now let me tell you why. When you're in the midst of a major decision... It creates stress and anxiety. You feel pressure from that process. I just need to decide what to do. When you come to a place where you think, okay, I'm ready to shake hands with this decision. It's a big decision. And you shake hands with it and you make the decision. There is a natural sense of relief that comes just because you're out from under the burden of having to make the decision. And so once you make it, there's this euphoria that you'll feel having made the decision. That is not the peace of God. That is not the peace of God. That's just, I feel better because this burden's off my back. The peace of God, let me describe it this way. The peace of God is that part in the very core of who you are as a person. It's actually at the level of your spirit. And, and I describe it like a body of water, like a pond or a lake at the center of your heart, center of your person. And the peace of God will cause the water on this, on, on this lake to be perfectly calm, like glass. And the lack of God's peace is always turbulent water. The wind blows, the waves. 
Now here's an interesting thing. All around this place in your life, there can be questions, there can be confusion, there can still be obfuscation of all sorts and varieties, all kinds of unanswered questions still exist in the midst of this major decision. But at the same time, you can have peace. This is what the Bible describes as the peace that passes understanding. You go, why would I feel peace in the middle of this mess? But I do. How can I be at peace in the, in, in the midst of this threatening circumstance or uncertainty? How can I be at peace? This is the peace of God that only God can supply to you. Or you can be uneasy. You can be void of peace, absent of peace. So here's what I'm saying. Here's how you do it. You do all of the previous steps. You withdraw, you wait, you seek the scriptures, you write things down, you consult wise counsel, you seek God's timing, you get to the place where you're ready to shake hands with the decision. I've done my due diligence. I think I know what God wants me to do. It's yes or no. And so I'm shaking hands. Lord, you know, this is my decision. And unless you stop me, this is what I'm going to do. And so you shake hands with the decision. You make it. And then you wait. You got to let all of the all of the adrenaline burn off. You got to let all of the euphoria go away. You have to let all of that subside. You have to give it a number of days, at least days. And then you wait for the peace of God. Let me tell you two examples, then we'll be done. I was going to hire a friend of mine, a lifelong friend for a high level position on our staff years ago. Everything lined up. Everything looked perfect. The relationship was there. The gifts were there. The, the, everything was in alignment. It just seemed obvious. This is a no-brainer. I'm going to hire this guy. I came within one phone call of telling him you should call your current employer and turn in your notice. Salaries had been set. All kinds of things were in place. And one phone call away. And everything seemed right. And I'd shaken hands with that decision. I'm going to hire that guy, Lord. You know I'm going to do it. And then I waited for the peace of God. And this went on for several weeks. And I could not experience the peace of God every time I brought it up. I said, God, God you know, this is obvious. This is a clear decision. This is, this, is, this is an easy one. So, Lord, thank you for your peace. And as soon as I would pray that way, I just, the water was just troubled. Everything around the pond was peaceful, was lined up. But I couldn't get any peace about it. Very, it's a very strange circumstance. Typically, if you line everything up, you'll have peace. This case, I didn't. This is why I say that the peace of God should be the final arbiter, should be the final umpire in a major decision in your life. And I remember where I was. I was coming east on McGalliard at Tillotson and McGalliard. The light turned red. I pulled up there, and I was irritated. I was agitated about the whole subject. And I was upset with God because he wouldn't give me any peace about this. And I finally said, okay, God, that's it. All right, you want to play this way? Fine. I'm, I'm disconnecting from this decision. I'm backing out of the whole thing. I'm not going to hire him. That's it. The deal is off. And the second I did that, water went calm. So irritating. Yeah, I didn't like it. So now I have to back out all of that. It was embarrassing. It was awkward. Six months later, though, my friend and his wife, this is at when the Soviet Union was imploding, the Iron Curtain was coming down, Eastern European bloc nations now were open to the gospel. Six months later, he and his wife were on a team planting churches in Eastern Europe. That's exactly where God had in mind for them. And if I had hired him, it would have been wrong. 
no peace. Let me just flip that over. The last illustration, you know, we looked at this facility. Our main building, sanctuary main building, was originally a car dealership, and it had been vacant for two and a half years. It was a mess. I mean, the roof was leaking, ceiling was falling down, all the windows were busted out, volunteer trees were growing in the parking lot. We brought a team of people over here and walked through it. I mean, it was a musty, soppy, cold November day, and it was horrible. I mean, it was, just a, it was like a junk pile. <laughs> it was a mess. We stood there, we circled up, well, Lord, thanks for letting us see this place. This isn't where we're supposed to go. Amen. Thank you, God. And so I, I went for several, several weeks and then into months and vetting this whole idea, major decision, right? Should we entertain purchasing this blown up car dealership? And I was quite certain in my own mind that God would never allow us to do that or want us to. And so I had shaken hands with that decision. Thank you, God, that you don't want us to buy that. No peace. No peace. I remember where I was. I was sitting in my canoe. I can tell you where I was on the lake. I can tell you the, the time of the day. I can tell you where, what direction I was facing. I was sitting in my canoe, sitting there going, okay, God, that's it. Changing my mind. I'm going to go back home and recommend to our church that we buy that worn out car dealership. Peace of God. Very, very annoying. Very upsetting. Look back on it now and you say, genius. Brilliant. Unbelievable leadership. Wow. What insight. What discernment. I was more against it than anybody. But I let the peace of God rule and reign in my heart as the final step in a decision. Nothing is more important in your life than learning how to hear the voice of God. Amen? Stand up with us.